That is our text this morning, Ephesians chapter number 2, verses 11 through 22. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles there if you hadn't already. You might see that in the days ahead. We're um, looking to potentially involve more covenant members in scripture reading and in corporate prayer and some other activities on Sunday morning worship. Dave, so thank you for reading that text this morning. Let's just open in a word of prayer. Um, as, as Andy indicated, this morning has been a challenge on a number of levels, and um, that isn't necessarily unique, right? Satan certainly uh, looks to meddle in our attempts to come to gather corporately to worship, to hear the word, and to respond to it. So let's just, uh, let's just take a moment to quiet our hearts as individuals and certainly corporately as a body, to recognize why we are here. Father, we pray that your Spirit would do a work in our lives this morning. I acknowledge just my need, even this morning, to, to, to rely on you and to need you to work in and through, as Andy even described, our feeble attempts because they are just that. We can accomplish nothing. We can manufacture nothing. Um, we can not change hearts or even change ourselves. We need your spirit to meet with us here at Warren Hills Elementary School as Liberty Hills Bible Church right here on, on this Sunday morning right now. And I, I even recognize in my own heart and I'm sure in the minds and hearts of those present here this morning that there are many distractions and things that are vying for our attention. And so I pray that your spirit would do battle on, on our behalf. We recognize that even in this room right now, there's spiritual warfare. And so I pray that um, you would just use this time, that it would not just be uh, another time on the schedule on, on Sunday, and this is what we just do, but rather it would be truly a heart of desire to come and hear from you. And maybe even at this moment, our heart can't desire that because there's that much of a struggle. And so I pray that you would use your word as a hammer to break up the hardness of a heart, that your um, spirit would be that comforter, that, that counselor, that paraclete that would minister to us right now at this moment. Um, even as Mark 4 speaks of the parable of the soils, I pray that uh, your, your spirit would do a work to cultivate up our heart to be soil that is ready to receive your word. Um, we need you. We recognize and acknowledge that this morning. I pray that again that our humble attempt to worship you, to know you and your word, that you would use it and you would grow it. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. Ephesians chapter number 2, verses 11 through 22 I've entitled the message this morning, Stranger Danger, right? And uh, I'm sure all of you parents out there or anybody that um, has interacted with kids at any point has probably used the term stranger danger, right? We're, we're familiar with that term. What, what is it? What is it, right? It's a simple and easy way to describe to our children and young people the dangers and risk of trusting or believing something that someone says if we don't really know them. So what are we doing as guardians, as parents? We're trying to teach the children to identify, do I know that person? And therefore, can I trust that person? Right? And we're trying to teach them to recognize what familiarity is and what a stranger looks like. And uh, there's different concepts around this term, stranger danger, right? What are we trying to uh, teach our children? That uh, if there would be a stranger that would come up to us, what do we do? We, we engage with caution and at a distance and only with what? Another person. Uh, the buddy system of, of engagement, right? And we're teaching them to, at that moment, to deploy a level of discernment, even at a very young age, to realize their surroundings and the situation and this individual that they are engaging in, right? And so at that moment, we're assessing them, do they feel threatened or 
does the circumstances around them, does something not quite add up right? And if so, what do they do? They make some noise. They find the nearest adult and they go on down the line of the activities that they should do in that moment. What's the conclusion? The conclusion that we're trying to teach our children is this, that we can't completely trust or believe something that someone says if we don't have the benefit of a relationship with that person. We don't know what, what my, one's motive is or their agenda. Or we don't know what their purposes are if we don't know that individual personally and in a relational way. Therefore, the current state of that relationship would have an element of what? Risk. Right? If that individual were to engage with them, there's risk involved if you don't what? If you don't know that person. And so we're trying to assess what is the risk and therefore how do I engage? But this morning, I'm obviously not here as an elder and pastor to give a community talk about stranger danger, right? I'm trying to use this analogy to help us understand the foundation and the basis of a relationship and how we engage with another person. Right? We're, we're here to use that simple analogy and, and poor at best to help us understand the state of one's relationship with another matters significantly. And specifically, spiritually, in our context here in Ephesians, the state of one's relationship with God matters significantly. Paul is exposing that our relationship with God without Christ it is, a very, is in a very difficult predicament. And that problem with that relationship with God has eternal ramifications. You see, without Jesus, we are described as, in our text, as, as strangers. And as strangers, the state of our relationship isn't just not good with God, it's actually really bad. And when I say really bad, I, I mean Paul actually describes us as in active hostility with God. So it isn't just not good or unfamiliar or, hey, hopeful that it could be something else. The state of our relationship with God is, is horrible. It is on rocky ground and we are in direct hostility and Scripture even describes as enmity with God the Father. So that's, that's a big problem. And Paul understands that. He understands that all of mankind needs to understand that the internal danger that they are in if we continue our life in a natural state as a stranger with God. That's a big deal. And so Paul is taking some time to just sit and simmer on that reality that we are strangers with God. And as a result of being strangers with God, there is danger for our eternal soul in that state. So with that said, what is the big idea of our text this morning? It's this. Because of the work of Jesus on the cross, the state of our relationship with God is radically changed, allowing us to experience peace with God and others in this world. All right, let me say that one more time. Because of the work of Jesus on the cross, the state of our relationship with God is radically changed, allowing us to experience peace with God and others in this world. So in similar fashion of chapter one, Paul covers very similar topics in the second half of chapter two than he did in the previous verses, but in, again, a different way. So in case you're wondering, I'm not just copying Dave as we've gone back and forth the last couple of weeks. Uh, it's actually the text, right? Paul is covering very similar topics in the first half of his chapter as he did in the second half of the chapter in both chapters one and two, but he's giving a, a different nuance or a different twist or a different perspective here in uh, our verses 11 through 22. So these thoughts... These concepts, they certainly may seem familiar than what Dave just preached last week, but lest the familiarity of it cause us to not uh, have our antennas up and our attention up, I want to encourage us to lean in to the familiarity of these conversations and these topics and ask ourselves the question, what is Paul trying to draw out of these same truths that he's just covered in the first half of chapter 2 in a different way. 
right in this in our text this morning, he's going to use a number of different analogies and metaphors to really help bring home the application of these spiritual truths of verses 11 through 22. All right, so our text this morning is broken down into three basic sections. Verses 11 through 13 describe the state of our standing of Paul's readers. He's going to address the past, the present, and certainly the future standing of the church here at Ephesus. Verses 14 through 18, they're going to describe the process of reconciliation for Paul's readers. This is going to address the technical how. How are we reconciled? How are we made uh, once strangers and now members of God's family? And then we're going to finish in this third section, verses 19 through 22, which is basically a reiteration of the first section, but emphasizing this idea of unity as Paul will introduce a couple of metaphors, again, to help us in the application. So what's the theme of our text? I want to help us wrap our minds around a theme, and the theme is this. It's one word, and I use that word in my big idea statement, so I want you to help me with that. Uh, as, you, as Dave read the text this morning, as you listened and potentially wrote down my big idea statement, what do you think the one word in our passage this morning is going to be the central theme of our text? Somebody help me with that. My life group can help me as well. We discussed this on Friday, briefly. What is it? Somebody shout it out. Shout it out loud, Justin. There we go. Yeah, it's peace, right? The central theme of our text is, is peace. And I don't know about you, but peace is one of those words that just seems, um, in the world that we live in, almost an ambiguous statement, right? Peace. What is peace? Um, Think about how we understand peace in our culture. Really, peace as we understand it in the world that we live in is the absence of something, right? Peace is the absence of what? War. What's that? Hostility. Hostility. Sure, it's the absence of... What's that? Yeah, the absence of conflict. Do you say that as well? Yeah, the absence of what else? Anything else? Enmity, yeah, certainly, yeah. So, so certainly peace is the absence of of something, but spiritually, as Paul is going to bring out this theme of peace, he's going to layer in something much more to this idea of a peace. It's actually reconciliation. One that was two that were once in hostility are now made what? One. So as the world understands this idea of peace, it's this common word of what? Coexist. Right? Have you ever heard that? So it's never about reconciliation of thoughts, ideas, and, and philosophies or arguments or disagreements. It's not about reconciliation, but it's really about, as the world understands it, everybody else having their own idea, their own thoughts, and being able to coexist in that reality. But yet you never really have true peace. Certainly there might be the absence of conflict. There might be the absence of an argument. But those ideas, those people, those relationships, those thoughts and ideas, they haven't been reconciled. Therefore, there really is no true peace. And so the postmodern society that we live in would say what? There is no absolutes, that truth is relative. And figuratively speaking, all roads lead to, to Rome, right? But that's... We know as a Christian that that's not true. That's not the reality. And that there is disagreements. There are hostilities out there in the world. And there certainly are different philosophies that are buying for a heart and our mind. And so here we have Paul anchoring this text on this theme of a peace. And I don't know about you, but as I look around the world, we're all searching for peace. Peace is Something that we all desire in our, our hearts and our lives. So peace, it's this elusive and mystical word in our day and age. It is often sought after, but yet rarely achieved. So the Bible, again, has a radically different definition for the word peace. Peace isn't just the ability to stick our head in the sand or plug our ears and sing la-la-la. It's not just the ability to put on the blinders and to stay in our lane, but rather it's about us being reconciled in our hearts and our minds in agreement with God as the only true source of truth and being made right 
between God the Father and us through the blood of Jesus. You see, for Paul, neutrality was not his goal. Neutrality is not the goal of peace. Paul's understanding of peace meant reconciliation of active hostility. And if reconciliation was possible, and it is, then unity was possible. And if unity was possible, then the glory of God on this earth is possible. And if the glory of, glory of God put on display on this earth is possible, then others, no matter what their background, their race, their previous religion, their socioeconomic standing, all of them could be absolutely involved in this process of achieving real peace. They could have it in their life. They could make it their own, and that could happen through the blood of Jesus. And this is the message that Paul is playing forward this morning. Do we remember John chapter number 17? I know you guys are probably tired of me talking about that chapter. John chapter number 17. Remember this beautiful description of how God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all one and how Christ in his prayer back to the Father, he desired that that same type of relational unity, he desired that for his church. That's us. That's you. That's me. And that's all of us that come together in the body of Christ. He desires us to experience that type of depth of unity. So friends, can we consider this morning, do you have peace in your life? Are you experiencing the peace of Christ in your life? Or do you find yourself figuratively in the rat race of life, chasing your tail, always looking for more, grasping and reaching for the next greatest thing, but never experiencing the contentment and the peace of Christ that comes only through relationship with him? So what does Paul have in mind here? One commentator described the relationship between these two passages of Scripture, the first half and the second half, this way. The primary orientation of chapter 2, 1 through 10 is vertical. The primary orientation of chapter 2, verses 11, 22 is what? Horizontal. Paul is transitioning from understanding the vertical relationship between God and man and now understanding the implications of that vertical relationship between God and man being made right and how that changes all the relationships that he puts in front of our path, namely how we relate to others in the context of the body of Christ. So Paul takes, again, the similar structure and shifts the dialogue to this horizontal relationship between the Jews and the Gentiles and the reconciliation that is achieved by the blood of Jesus on the cross. With that said, let's look at our first section of our text this morning, verses 11 through 13. Let's read it. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We see in verse 11 here, this first word of our text is what? Therefore. It's a critical word that helps us transition from one thought to another. Anytime Paul or any other author for that matter uses this word therefore in introducing a new thought or concept, the author, Paul in this instance, is urging the reader to do what? Consider this new idea in light of what? The immediate context. Paul's saying, based on what I just said, consider these additional truths. Right? So let's remember what? For by grace you have been saved through what? Faith. And then not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We'll use that as our anchor thought that we're going to play forward into our text this morning. So Paul's urging his readers to continue through this letter, but only while remembering what he has already conveyed in chapter 1 and more directly again in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2. So he goes on and says, therefore, what? What's the next word? 
Remember, you say, Eric, at this rate, it's going to take a long time to get through this passage. Don't worry. We're going to take bigger phrases here as we continue to go on. But here we have the second word of verse number 11 is remember. This is really the the core verb or imperative of our passage. This gives us how we should approach this text. He's, He's drawing our attention down into one thing, to remember the context of what he just talked about. But then he's going to say, therefore, remember these additional truths. And it is really the only imperative that we see in these first few chapters of Ephesians. So certainly this takes on the crux of Paul's demeanor and disposition in these first few chapters. He's calling them over and over and over again to remember some very basic things about who God is, who we are without Christ, and what he's provided for us through Christ. So therefore, remember. Remembering is somewhat difficult. I don't know if you have a good memory or not. My wife would tell you that I do not have a good memory, right? I'm often asking her to help me keep my schedule online to remember different events, different things on our calendar, different kids' events, things that we have to go to. My wife is an incredible blessing on that front, right? She helps keep my life in order in many degrees. But whether or not you have a good memory or not, when it comes to spiritual things, is it not just natural for our human nature to simply do what? To forget, Our human nature, is it not just natural for us to simply forget these deep and beautiful truths about our salvation? And not only in our flesh do we forget, but it's also part of what? The the world that we live in is buying for that attention. Not only that, but we have spiritual warfare that that is causing us to drown out these beautiful realities of who Christ is and what he's done for us on the cross of Calvary. And so Paul knows all these things and he tells us, therefore, to remember. And so let's do that this morning. Let's let's simply remember. Let's remember this text. Let's remember who Christ is. Let's remember what we've already gone through in chapter 1 and the beginning part of chapter 2. It literally means to what? To simply bring to mind. Remembering has the idea of also keeping in mind, that it's not a one-time activity of remembering, but we remember once and we do what? We keep on remembering day after day after day. We often have to preach the same exact truths to our hearts and our lives to remember that who Jesus is on a daily basis. We have to simply remember these things. Why? Because we often forget. So why would we? Why would we do that? We know in Mark chapter 4, I, I prayed this just before we started getting into our text this morning. Mark 4, 18 and 19. Andy often references these uh, verses out of the parable of the soil. Christ says this, and others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things enter in and do what? They choke out the word and it proves unfruitful. Have you ever been there before? Are you there maybe even right now in your life where you're feeling a dry season spiritually? You're feeling like you've been kind of going through the desert spiritually? The antidote to wandering in the desert over and over and over again is simply to what? To remember, to anchor our heart and our mind on the goodness of Christ's character and what he's done for us. He's chosen us. We are his beloved. He's given us what? An inheritance. So let's remember these truths. And so Paul is going to urge his readers to remember three things this morning. First one is this, Paul urges his readers to remember their past standing without Christ. Paul addresses first his Gentile readers, right? We'll cover this section somewhat quickly because Dave, again, has provided uh, adequate context for us of who we are without Christ. But here in verses 11 through 13, Paul, again, gives us some unique metaphors to describe his reader's state, specifically the Gentiles. And certainly from an application perspective, we can layer in our own standing without Christ. 
and put ourselves even in the reader's shoes here this morning as we seek to apply this passage to our own lives. So Paul personalizes this conversation and brings it straight home to each individual that would have been receiving this letter. He says this, at one time, you. Right, you see that next phrase as we get past the therefore remember that at one time, you. This phrase, again, is, is central to us really owning where we are at before a holy God in our sin without Christ. At one time, you. And he's addressing specifically who? The Gentiles. He's, he's spe specifically addressing this group or this subset that would have been in the church that would, that would describe themselves as Gentiles. So what does he say? He goes on and describes them two ways. Gentiles in the flesh and the what? Uncircumcision. Literally referring to the Gentiles as, as the foreskin. Now, obviously, these topics aren't necessarily the easiest to walk through and preach. And I don't want us to get hung up on the metaphor because this has incredible spiritual significance for our understanding of what Paul would have us to remember this morning. So for Paul's Gentile readers, being referred to as the uncircumcision was absolutely, it would have been a derogatory term. They would understand societally the conflict between the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews were what? They had the sign of circumcision, and that sign was to God as their what? Their, they were the chosen people. And then we have over here the Gentiles. Not God's chosen people. Not having this spiritual sign of circumcision. There was a, a stark contrast here. That would have not just racial ramifications, but societal ramifications. And here in the church, it existed. And Paul wanted to hit it head on, right? It was this derogatory term. And so when Paul used this analogy, immediately they would have perked their ears up. They would have sat up straight. They would have gone to the edge of their seat maybe, and they would have listened in intently with, where, Paul, are you going with this one, right? These Gentile readers, they would have been reminded at that moment that they were not partakers of the covenant sign of circumcision and were as a result not God's chosen people and were therefore, as verse 12 described, separated, alienated, and estranged from God. So Paul parks that for a moment. But in a similar way, Paul addresses his Jewish readers. And before they become too puffed up or arrogant in their standing as God's chosen people, as Gentiles in the context of the body of Christ, he has a reality check for them. Paul describes them in similar ways. Their status as the true circumcision is described as one in the what? Flesh, and two, it is made by what? Hands. So as Paul often does, he draws our attention to a point of contrast or comparison. The quality of this circumcision is at best of this world. So he's reminding them that circumcision has no power to save. Although this sign had great spiritual significance in identifying the Jews' relationship with God, it had no what? Salvific value. It was not what they were to place their hope and their trust in. Their status as a Jew or their status as a Gentile at this point had no bearing on their eternal state with God the Father. They all were on the same ground. They need Jesus. So Paul continues on to take this analogy forward. Paul was taking the hands of his Jewish readers to lead them away from the tendency to place their trust in traditions or religion, and he was leading them to a decision to place their trust in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Do you see that contrast that Paul is highlighting? The temporal work of human hands versus the eternal work of God in Christ Jesus. So in verse 12, Paul goes on to use this word, remember again. Do you see it there? Verse number 12, Paul starts with it. He says, remember. 
He starts with it in verse number 11. He starts with it in verse number 12. He's once again circling back to this reality that we need to remember who we are in Christ. Paul is obviously clearly not done with his quest to, to help his readers remember, remember some very specific truths. So what is the standing of not only these original readers at the church of Ephesus, but all of us who are without Christ? In verse number 12, Paul gives us five specific issues that need to be highlighted in the current Gentile or Jewish standing without Christ. First, he says, he describes them as what? Separated from Christ. Secondly, he describes them as alienated from Israel. Thirdly, he says they are strangers to the promise. Verse 4, he goes on to some more weighty implications. He says they are without hope. And number 5, they are without God in this world. The only conclusion that the readers could come to at this point is that they have a big eternal problem. Verse number 13 provides a clear transition, a beginning to identify the eternal solution for the eternal predicament by using this conjunction once again, what? But. Our verse number 13 is the verse number four of the previous verses. The but God now transitions to what? But now. Do you see it there in, in verse number 13? Let's read it together. But now in Christ Jesus, you once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. But now. Once again, Paul puts on full display this divine intervention. What is about to be described could only be completed by none other than Jesus. Paul says, but now what? In Christ. So he's identifying the one who's about to make this transition. He's identifying the one who, who only has the power to address these issues of the Jewish and the Gentile standing before God. It is only Christ. So but now in Christ. Then he summarizes his previous descriptions by using this analogy of what? Distance. He talks about being far and now brought near. He uses this analogy of distance. Without Christ, you were far off. No hope without God, but now. You've been what? Brought near by the blood of Christ. I love this phrase, brought near. Don't we learn something about our salvation and our relationship with God in those two words, brought near? Can we think back to our previous text of Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, and does it not support this idea that we bring nothing to the game of salvation? I cannot initiate salvation. I cannot complete salvation. And I certainly cannot keep my own salvation for all eternity. It is only God who can do this work, and it is only God who brings us near through Christ. Back to God the Father. I love that phrase. I couldn't do this work. I couldn't adjust or change the span of distance between God and myself. Only a mediator, only an advocate, Christ Jesus, could make this happen. It is by grace, through faith, and of no work of my own that my standing before a holy God is changed. Only the blood of Jesus could do that work. Amen? Only the blood of Jesus could do that work. So secondly, Paul urges his readers to not only remember their past standing before Christ, but secondly, he urges his readers to remember their present standing in Christ. We see that in verses 14 through 18. Before we dive into that, we need to remember that peace, again, is our central theme of this passage. It's used specifically four times in verses 14 through 18. We see it in verse 14, verse number 15, and two times in verse number 17. I love verse number 14. Let's read it together. What does Paul say? He says this, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. See, verse 14, Paul uses a very intentional description 
of Jesus in relation to this idea of peace. Does Christ bring peace? Certainly he does. Is Christ a messenger of peace? Certainly he is. But in this text here, Paul brings out this unique nuance of Christ as literally what? He is himself peace. And that without Christ, any peace that we experience in our life is simply a a temporal counterfeit. Because without Christ, the true peace himself, we have no lasting, authentic, real peace. This peace that is Christ has radically changed, not just the individual believer, but equally, he has changed the how of the way the individual believer relates to others in the context of the body of Christ. So verse number 14 says that he made us both what? One. Who is the us described here in this text? Who are the two? The Jews and the the Gentiles. So the us has now been made one. So what was two is now one in Christ. Meaning all the racial conflict, all the societal issues that would come between the Jews and the Gentiles, all the puffed up standing of God's chosen ones, and all the derogatory statements of the Gentiles, all that is cast aside, and the two are now one under the headship of Christ in the context of his church. That is is beautiful. I don't think... Many times we really get how big of a deal those words would have been in that day. And for us, even in our day, to understand that two can become one, the racism, the hostility, the prejudices, the hate, the bigotry, it is all, it can all be gone. It can all be washed away in Christ. All of those things were real then, and they are real even for us today. We see them in the headlines. We feel them in our nation. We see them even in our neighborhoods and our communities around us. This tension is real. And we're looking to solve these societal issues with something that can't last. There's no political campaign. There is no community initiative that can be put in place that can reconcile two to become one but the blood of Jesus. It's beautiful, the opportunity that we have within the body of Christ, that we have an opportunity through how we love and how we live and how we interact with those in our community, whether they look like us or different than us, whether the background is similar or very different. If we name Jesus Christ, we can put on display what true peace really looks like because that individual has received peace and and I have received peace and now we can become one in Christ receiving peace. We're all on the same ground. There is no tier or pedestal within the context of the body of Christ. There's no jockeying for position as individuals in the kingdom of God. There is no ladder to climb or caste system to pursue. What was divided by man is now one in Christ. This is the beauty that we have through the gospel and the work of Jesus. And we have an opportunity to put that on full display. And how we, as Liberty Hills Bible Church, understand, embody, and live out these truths that Paul is sharing to us here this morning. So friends, this should radically change how we interact in this world. We must confront even our own prejudices of our day. When we hesitate to reach out because of the outward appearance of another. When we look away in inward disgust instead of looking in to be moved with compassion at an individual's predicament or situation that they might find themselves in. When we draw lines of polarized political stances instead of listening and ministering in a time of need, when we hold on to any comfort, when Christ has called us to lay it down and to live in love as he did, when the world looks at the church, it should see the supernatural oneness that Paul describes here in chapter number two. And that oneness, it can't be seen anywhere else on this earth. It's a miracle. Where two in this world are now one. How does this work happen? Let's look on at verses number 14, 15, 
16, 17, and 18. First, we're going to see if, as far as how this is accomplished, again, that Christ has made the Jews and the Gentiles one. We saw that in the beginning of verse number 14. Secondly, Christ has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. We see that in the second half of verse number 14. Thirdly, Christ has abolished the law. We see this in verses 15 and 16. Let's read uh, our text there in, in those two verses. By abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So we have here a contrast of what peace and hostility, hostility is mentioned a few times there in our text. It's a reminder that once again, who we were before Christ, our state as a sinner needs to be dealt with. And Christ as our peace makes the two one. Why would Jesus do this? He tells us again in verse number 15 and 16, when we see um, these phrases, that, right? Let's... Uh, by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances, that he might create. That can literally be translated so that. It gives the why of Christ breaking down these walls of hostility. So he says what? So that he might create one out of the two. And he wants to use that to put on full display the work of reconciliation in this world. Number two, he goes on in verse number 16, so that why? He might reconcile us both to God, the Jew and the Gentile, both reconciled to God. What do we know about the term reconciliation or to reconcile? Familiar accounting term, right? Um, we should be somewhat familiar with this term. There was a, a debt. It has been paid, and our account is now what? It's settled. The books have been reconciled. Everything is Zero balanced. There's nothing to be paid. There's nothing to be owed. Christ has done that work and it is, it is reconciled. We are reconciled to God. Our debt to God the Father because of our sin has been paid. We are, we are reconciled. That is a beautiful reality of our salvation in this text. And so Christ not only wants to reconcile us as individuals to God, but he also wants to see what? Horizontal reconciliation across the aisle. The Jews and the Gentiles that would have been in hostility or enmity with each other are now one. They are reconciled relationally. Why? Because Christ has reconciled them back to God. So just as we have received reconciliation, God's word tells us that we are ministers of that reconciliation, right? To extend that to others that we come in contact with. Jesus has completed that work. So Christ has given us an example in his earthly ministry. Let's look at verses 17 and 18. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near for through him we have both we both have access in one spirit to the father so then you are no longer strangers and aliens but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God right so we have here that we have an example in Christ Jesus's ministry this is the how that we can do that as well when Christ came to this earth and he interacted with others, what did he do? Did he preach peace to just the Jews? No, he preached peace to the woman at the well, the Samaritan. He certainly preached peace to the Gentiles. He preached peace to everybody that he came in contact with. Why? Because he was peace. So we have an example even in how Christ lived and walked in his earthly ministry that Paul highlights us to. He says, hey, you want to know how to do this? Look at Jesus. Look at how he lived. Look at how he interacted with others. You want to know how to put reconciliation on display for the world? You want to know how two become one? Look at how Christ walked on this earth. Look at his ministry. Examine what he did. Examine how he interacted with others. So our standing is certainly is the same as Christ. Our standing in Christ is sure. Our standing in Christ is strong. Our, our standing in Christ is, is without any issue. 
There's no cracks in that foundation. It is, it is forever resolved that if we place our faith and in, in, in our confidence in the finished work of Jesus Christ, that we too can be reconciled to God the Father. And what's accomplished through all of this? We have what? I love this term, access. All right, let's read verse number 18. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Reminds me of Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16, says this. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now that we have been brought near, what does the author of Hebrews tell us to do? To draw near. We have responsibility in the maintenance of the nearness of that relationship, if I can put it that way. We've been brought near in salvation. We cannot control that. We cannot impact that. We cannot do that work. Only a work of the Spirit through the blood of Jesus Christ can we be brought near. But Hebrews tells us that we are then to draw near and to go to the throne of grace with what? Confidence that we may receive mercy to find grace to help in time of need. We have access to the Father through what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. Thirdly, finally, Paul urges his readers to remember the implications of who they are in Christ. He urges his readers to what? Remember the implications of who they are in Christ. He uses this, word, this phrase in verse number 19. Let's read it. He says this, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. The so then is the transition it's a statement to help us consider how all of this fits together and what means by which this is going to come about. Paul goes on to use three metaphors to concrete these truths in the minds of his readers. He uses the metaphors and they have, um, I guess, different subsets or genres, right? The first metaphor is somewhat political. The second uh, metaphor somewhat familiar in the illustration of a family. And the third is, is kind of uh, religious, I guess we could call it, right? From the, the perspective of a temple, right? So let's go ahead and read our, our final verses, 19 through 22. It says this, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. These last few verses here that Paul shares with us is again, again putting on display the change of our identity in our status. And he gives these metaphors to help us understand not just how it changes vertically, but how it changes horizontally. As each and every one of us as individuals understand that we've been changed the way that Paul has described, we then can come together corporately and collectively as the body of Christ, and we can be used corporately as the body of Christ, as his church, the way that he designed to put the glory of God on full display for his purpose. So the three analogies are this. We once were strangers, but now we are what? Described as fellow citizens. Strangers would describe from a political sense those who were far off, not from that area. They weren't engaged in the political climate of the area. They don't have any business voting or understanding what's going on in that area. They were once strangers, but now they are fellow citizens. He goes on to describe that they are secondly aliens and are now members of the household of God. That we were once estranged, right? But Christ did what in chapter 1? He adopted us into his family. And now we who were once aliens are now members of the household of God. We've been ushered out of darkness into light. We've been, uh, our very identity has been changed from a, a child of disobedience to now what? A child of God. And then thirdly, he describes us as building stones being used to build God's 
holy temple, his church, the kingdom of God put on display right here through the body of Christ. So friends, the one conclusion that we can have this morning is this. It is God who does this work. It is he who keeps it. And it is in our understanding of these truths that will allow this, verses 11 through 22, to be put on full display in the world that we live in. So friends, I wonder, going back to our big idea of our text, because the work of Jesus on the cross, the state of our relationship with God is radically changed, allowing us to experience peace with God and others in this world. As Paul wrote this text to the church at Ephesus, now thousands of years later, we have an opportunity to consider its application for our own lives. I wonder this morning, are you experiencing peace with God? Is there maybe unconfessed sin or the, as you have been brought near to Christ in salvation, have you maybe strained back from your relationship with him? It's opportunity for us this morning to draw near once again and find grace and mercy in our time of need. And then ultimately, as we consider how we interact to this world, I wonder, what's your perspective of the world that you live in? Is the world a bother? Is the world annoying to you? Is those that have other ideas and philosophies, those that don't know Christ, or are we just defaulting to this idea that I just need to keep my safe little bubble? Are we understanding that because we've been saved and because we have been reconciled to God, we need to go out and make disciples for the glory of God? Let's close in a word of prayer as we move to our time of communion this morning. Father, I thank you again for these truths. I pray that um, now as... We have the opportunity to partake of your table. I pray that right now, even this morning, that we would consider our hearts. We would consider our standing before you. We would consider the status of our relationships with others. Have we wronged others? Are we um, living in, in known sin? Are we letting the cares of this world and the riches of this world, the entanglements of this world, and... The, are we allowing the weights and the sin that clings, clings so closely? Are we allowing those things to keep us back from running this race as you have called us to? Father, I pray that we would even consider as covenant members this morning our responsibility to interact and engage in the relationships that are represented here in very intentional and real ways. And so, Father, as we come to the table, it's an opportunity for us to consider all of that. And I pray we would do just that. So, Father, we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name.